Last Sunday, we started out on a brand new series called One True God. And if you did not hear the sermon from last week, please go find it either on YouTube or off of our website. We'll point you there, but please listen to it. It is the foundation for where we're going today. And today is going to be the foundation for where we go next week and where we get to at the end of September. And if you come in late in the series and you're like, well, okay, I heard this part here, but you didn't have this part or that part, you, you might be left in a place where you're like, ah, I'm not sure how strong that is. It's because you, you didn't put the foundation down. If you didn't hear last week's, go and listen to it. In a one-sentence recap, last week... We just said, like, whether you want to use words like universalism, syncretism, or polytheism, or whatever, this concept that either everyone gets saved for eternity, or this concept that maybe you can blend different religions, because maybe we're all worshiping the same God, just different ways and stuff, or this idea that there's many gods of which Jesus is only one of, those ideas just fall miserably flat, according to the Old Testament. That's what we landed on last week. Anybody who was here, would you agree with the statement that the Old Testament was like absolutely, like very repetitively sound and clear in that statement? Okay. So if you didn't hear it, go back and listen. But the Old Testament is super clear on that, which begs only one question. What's the question? Two questions, maybe. One is, well, what, is the, what about the New Testament? Right? And, but you could push back on that even farther. Let me help you out, okay? I'll help you push back because I want to address exactly this. What if, what if someone just says, okay, Delan, I know that the Old Testament... Let me just ask the Lord to... I want to reiterate Corny's prayer, Kevin's prayer, and I want to ask the Lord a very special thing right here. Just wait. Jesus, would you come and by the power of your Holy Spirit, could you break our hearts for what breaks yours? And could you allow the things that are said here in English allow them to penetrate not just into our minds, but right down into our hearts, that we would actually feel your emotion that's connected to truth. And our hearts would become broken for what breaks yours. Amen. Okay, so there's 613 laws in the Old Testament. Commands, right? And so if, if worshiping the Lord as the one true God is one of those commands... What about the commands that we don't obey? What, what if this command is like one of those? Like, for instance, we, there's commands to offer sacrifices, uh, uh, like a lamb as a sacrifice. We don't obey that anymore. Or there's commands to build a, a, a fence around your, the roof of your house. I've never seen anybody in Manitoba do that. We don't obey that. There's a command uh, to get circumcised, and yet we don't preach that. So if we don't obey those commands, why would we have to then obey this command to worship the only one true God? You need to be able to know how to answer that question, and it's super simple. Questions like the command to build a railing around your house are civic laws in the Old Testament. They don't longer apply. They apply to a certain people for a certain time, and that's it. They didn't apply to everybody on the planet. That's pretty easy. Commands to offer a lamb as a sacrifice was a ceremonial law in the Old Testament, which was in effect until what happened? 
Till Jesus came, he's the ultimate lamb, he's the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And so those laws applied till Jesus came because he fulfilled them. And things like circumcision are a separation law, separating Israel from their surrounding nations. The New Testament makes it clear those don't, that doesn't apply either in the New Testament. But there are some laws in the Old Testament that resoundly do apply. They're called moral laws. And the test of a moral law is actually fairly simple if you think about two things. You think about what the greatest commandment is in Scripture and the second one. And just recognize that if it's a moral law, it has to be a universal truth to all people from all nations at all times. Okay? So either it's, it's got to say something about God's character, and it's got to say something about how to love our neighbor, and it's going to be, have to be something that's applicable to everyone, all nations, not just the Israelites, because that would be a separation law. So for instance, something like when the Old Testament says, do not lie, does it apply today? Sure it does. tells us something about God's character, His truth. tells us how to talk to our neighbor. And God actually judged many other nations and people for lying. Okay? There's other examples like that, but it helps us to sniff through that. It's also how you get to something like when the Bible says, do not steal, tells you how to love your neighbor. Right? Also reflects God's character. God chastised other nations for doing stuff like that. Is it universal? Is the other sniff test to, to know? So if a moral law, if one of those laws in the Old Testament is a moral law, it's going to tell us about God, it's going to tell us about how to love our neighbor, and it is going to be, and this is often a really clear indicator of it, you can tell if it's a moral law if it applies to other nations than just Israel. You guys with me? So when we're thinking about this command of worship, the one true God, His name is Yahweh. We just sang songs to Him. Jesus Christ. Is that a command that is a moral law or is it just a separation law? Because if it's just a separation law, well, it's no big deal really. You don't have to pay attention. Right? So the question is simple. Let's just look at the Old Testament first. Is there any evidence in the Old Testament that God would expect other nations to worship Him as, by His name, the Lord? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew words means Yahweh, right? In the New Testament, the words the Lord refer to Jesus. And you'll recognize that Jesus and the Lord are one and the same. They're the same unchanging God, okay? But if we, if we can find evidence of this already in the Old Testament, it's going to establish it as a moral law. Are you guys with me? There's a couple of examples last week. We, like, there's a number of examples in the Old Testament where an old, uh, would some, a foreigner would come into Israel and counter the Lord and acknowledge him as the one true God. Naaman would be an example of that. We talked about Naaman last week, right? Commander of a foreign army comes to Israel, encounters the Lord, acknowledges that there is only one God. His name is the Lord, Yahweh. Okay? First Chronicles 16, David, King David, he boldly claims that there is only one God, his name is the Lord, and every other God is just an idol. And that truth isn't reserved just for Israel. He, it's, as David reflects God's heart, it clearly comes out that this is for all nations. Let's just read some of this together so you 
track where I'm going. First Chronicles 16. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim His salvation day after day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous deed among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. He continues in that same chapter. Tremble before Him all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Amen? So, separation law or a moral law? What do you think? Let's keep on going in case you're not convinced. So, uh, there's a whole bunch of scriptures that would just literally repeat this over and over in the Old Testament. Solomon's prayer, when he's praying in the, uh, dedicating the temple, he prays exactly that other nations would recognize the Lord and acknowledge Him as the one true God. Evidence of that is when Queen of Sheba comes to visit him. Several times in her recorded words in scripture, she credits the Lord. Psalm 87 records at least five other nations that the psalmist says are going to become citizens of Jerusalem. In other words, they're going to become worshipers of Yahweh, mentioning Egypt and Babylon and Philistia, Tyre and Ethiopia. Psalm 96 goes on to say that there is no other God, and that chapter like exhorts us to tell this to other nations. I really would love it if you would read those chapters. You'll recognize it is a powerfully obvious. Isaiah 17, there's an oracle against Damascus. Damascus is not part of Israel, but that oracle, they are held to account for forgetting God, their Savior, who is the Holy One of Israel. The oracle goes on to say that their gods are worthless. The Bible holds them to the exact same truth that the Lord, His name is Yahweh, He's the one true God. Chapter 18 in Isaiah also prophesies against the people of Ethiopia. You don't have to be good, super good at geography to recognize Ethiopia is quite far away from Israel. But it talks about them, that they are going to worship Yahweh. In chapter 19, the people of Egypt who are worshiping idols, it says they're going to receive a punishment from the Lord. And then their appropriate response will be to return to the Lord and acknowledge the one true God. Isaiah chapter 24 describes the Lord's devastation of the nations and that all the kings of the entire earth are going to receive the same punishment until they acknowledge and worship the Lord, the God of Israel, the righteous one. Isaiah 24 says the same thing. And here's a little snippet, okay? I'm whipping through passages, and some of them I'm putting up here, so if you guys don't believe me, you could, go, you could be like a Berean and actually double-check. But it's quite obvious. Here's a little snippet. Those in the west praise the Lord's majesty. In eastern lands, give glory to the Lord. In the lands beyond the sea, praise the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. We hear songs of praise from the ends of the earth. Songs that give glory to the righteous one. And there's other chapters in Isaiah, like chapter 26, that describes the Lord's wrath coming to the earth, not just one nation. Chapter 45, 66, they call out Egypt and Ethiopia and Tarshish and Libya and Tubal and Greece and all the lands beyond the sea to submit to God and acknowledge that there's only one God. His name is the Lord. 
the story of Jonah in the Bible. Jonah was sent to the city of Nineveh. The whole story about Jonah. Where is Nineveh? Which country? Assyria. The message was to acknowledge the Lord for salvation. You know what's fantastic about Assyria? Often in Scripture, it's an enemy nation of Israel. Doesn't matter because the Lord is the God of every nation. Zephaniah chapter 2, there's at least five different nations mentioned there. Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Ethiopia, and Assyria that are going to be punished by the Lord. And then it gives the reason why they're going to be punished and what the appropriate response would be. Look at what it says. Zephaniah chapter 2. This is what they will get in return for their pride. For insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the earth. Distant nations will bow down to him. All of them in their own lands. Numerous times in the book of Jeremiah... There's far too many to read them through. Here's a snippet of them, like a couple of references. Other nations are included in this call to repent that would ward off the Lord's anger and his wrath. Includes Babylon and their false idols and their defiance of the Lord. Ezekiel 20 to 32, there's 12 chapters the Lord, it, it, that talk about the Lord bringing judgment against nations. Each time it says the purpose, the purpose is that then they will know that I am the Lord. The primary objective is to bring his chosen people into alignment with him. And although that judgment will start with the house of God, you could even say in the Old Testament it will start in Israel. Yes. But other nations are not exempt. And that is made super clear. God expects them to also acknowledge that he is sovereign Lord. And in chapter 25, it talks about Ammon. It goes on to talk about Moab and Edom and Philistia and Tyre and Sidon and Egypt, calling them out by name. You can see the same thing in the book of Zechariah. More prophecy about the same. Malachi, more prophecy about the same. The whole book of Nahum. Do you know who the book of Nahum was written to? It was written to the city of Nineveh, which we just said is in the country of Assyria. And in that book of Nahum, False gods are condemned. The city is accused of being a seductive prostitute, luring people away from the Lord. This is pretty obvious. And if we go right back, and I'm just going to, now we're going to get, I just want to take a little jab here, and I know this sometimes, uh, it's important for us to stay biblical in the way that we think. I want to go right back in the Old Testament to when God sent uh, the Israelites. They had to wander in the desert for 40 years. <laughs> but eventually they got where? The promised land. But the promised land was already filled with people. And the Lord, if I was to paraphrase, kicked them out. Does a just God do that? That question has deceived people. But let me show you what the Bible says. Deuteronomy 18 says this, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, be very careful 
not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. For example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering. And do not let your people practice fortune-telling or use sorcery or interpret omens or engage in witchcraft or cast spells or function as mediums or psychics or call forth spirits of the dead. Anyone! He's just listed off a few of the false idols that exist, but anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. It is because... The other nations have done these detestable things that the Lord your God will drive them out ahead of you. That is exactly what a just God does. In fact, he will hold Israel to exactly the same standard and he tells them many times, if you are going to do the same thing that those nations did, I will kick you out as well. For what reason? To acknowledge that there is one true God. At least that's what the Bible says. So let me let me hone this into Canada 2022, okay? Culture just like personality, if it doesn't conform to God's law, is sin. Culture, just like personality, if it doesn't conform to God's law, is sin. There's, I'll give you the example of personalities. There's many personalities in the world. You're probably married to one of them, right? And there's many. They're different. And we probably have 300 different personalities right here. And they should be celebrated. Right? But the moment a personality contradicts or does not conform to God's law, it is sin. It's broken. You need to confess the sin, repent of it, and conform to God's law or Christ's likeness, which was the same thing. And the exact same thing applies for culture. There's different cultures in the world and they should be celebrated. But the moment any culture, anyone, the moment any culture does not conform to what God's Word says, people should repent, confess their sin, acknowledge it, repent, and then conform to God's standard. That is as applicable in Canada 2022 as it was in the Old Testament when Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy. So anyways, the point is here that we can clearly see that this idea to worship the one true God is a moral law firmly established in the Old Testament as such. So firmly established in the Old Testament that even if the New Testament was silent on it, is already established as a moral law because it applies to all people at all times. Does that make sense? Which leads us to the obvious question, though, of what does the New Testament say? Right? Because if the New Testament has anything to say about this, it's only going to confirm what the Old Testament said. 
or it's only going to ratify that this is actually a moral law. It's going to make it like, quite obvious. So let's just read it. Well, just a couple examples. 1 Corinthians 8, for instance, says this. We all know that an idol is... Okay, well, there you go. Right? <laughs> that clearly says that. Right? And that there is only one God. There may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But for us, there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. That doesn't even need a ton of interpretation. It ratifies what the whole Old Testament has been saying. Amen? But here's what you see. God takes time to include in the New Testament example after example after example and quote after quote that says the same thing again and again. I think it's important to God's heart. Like this is important to Him. And the Old Testament is connected to the, the, Old Testament is connected to the New Testament. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 10. It says this. Well, first of all, let me ask you this question. Do you guys remember the story in the Old Testament where, where Moses and the Israelites, they drank water from a rock? Raise your hand if you've heard that story before. If you've ever been to Sunday school, you should have heard that story. Okay? But this is, so if you heard the story and you knew that these people, they drank water out of a rock, this verse is actually going to seem a little bit odd. Paul is describing what happened to Moses and the Israelites in the first five, uh, first three or four verses of this chapter. He's describing, this is what happened to the Moses and the Israelites. He's clearly talking about them, and he says this, For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them. And you're like, hold on, what? The rock was traveling with them? I thought they just got to that place and they drank water out of a rock. True. But the rock was actually traveling with them. And that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Do you see how Paul is connecting Jesus into the Old Testament? And that the Old Testament actually connects with the New Testament because God's the same. Let's keep reading. They're inseparable, actually. Verse 6 says this, These things happened as a warning to us. In other words, the Old Testament is very relevant in the New Testament because it's full of warnings and examples for us. So that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. Relevant in the New Testament? Absolutely. As the Scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan, uh, pagan revelry. And what do you think that's a reference to? The Old Testament story in Exodus 32 where Aaron sets up a golden calf. It's a direct quote from there. You can, if you look at the footnote in your Bible, that's where it's going to take you. It's a relevant story in the New Testament for the same reason. That's not how you worship the Lord because there's only one God. Stephen, the martyr, just before he died, is preaching the sermon of his life and he uses exactly the same illustration. Verse 11, another reminder here. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us to live at the end of the age. 
And then he gets to the conclusion of ta- saying these things. And he, in verse 14 he says, So, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. That's the point. So much for syncretism. Amen? It's ridiculous. This conclusion is clear. There is only one true God. But here's a compelling question. And super uncomfortable. So who exactly are people worshiping when they worship the sun or when they worship the moon or stars or gods of other names? We'll keep on reading the same passage in verse 19. It says, Paul says this, What am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to, to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No. Well, that's easy. No. Not at all. I am saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons. Not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. In case it wasn't super clear how the New Testament deflates syncretism, let's just listen to this next sentence. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons too. What? Do we dare to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Do you think we are stronger than He is? According to the Bible... The worship of other gods is to worship demons. We're going to connect this in the next coming series. There are more bricks that are going to stack on top of this, but those New Testament words for the Lord that he says right here, he's actually referring back to that Old Testament passage in Exodus 34, 14, where it says, Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And he's talking about the Lord as in Yahweh, because Yahweh and Jesus are the same. He's a jealous God, and that pertains to the, in the New Testament. The Old Testament sure made it clear. The New Testament makes it clear. Jesus feels the same. Paul continues this thought in the second letter to the Corinthians. He says this in chapter 11, verse 2. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ. And here again, he's, he's going back to that Old Testament imagery of being like in a marriage-type relationship with Jesus. And then if we're cheating on him by worshiping other gods, that is detestable to the Lord. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Verse 3, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you... Now these next verses should scare people. These next verses should scare Christians into doing what? Read your Bible. I'm serious. Look how scary this is. For if someone comes to you... He's talking to the church. If someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus, other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. That should terrify Christians into going, what? 
Just because someone's talking about a Jesus or talking in their church, they just they talk about Jesus, they talk about a spirit, they talk about the gospel, must be true. The only way you're going to pick up on if they are telling you a different gospel is if you know your Bible. This should terrify you into studying this word so you actually know what it says. Jude said something equally frightening. I'm not embellishing anything more than the Bible says. The Bible makes the case way stronger than I'm saying it here. The book of Jude, he includes two words that I think are interesting. Fascinating. It's one chapter book. In his book, it is a really stiff call to the church warning them that bad theology has crept into the church like that mold creeping through the wall. And he says, godless men have slipped into the church. And these godless men in the church, you know what they're doing? They deny Jesus Christ as our, here's the injected word, only sovereign and Lord. That word only should pique your, should be a little flag waving in your mind that says, so were they just saying Jesus was one of other gods? These godless men were denying Jesus as their only sovereign and Lord. And he signs off in verse 25 with that same injection of the word only. And he says, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority. Jude is warning his readers of the same warning that applies to Manitoba churches today. And you know what he says that's going to happen to these godless men in the church? You know what they can anticipate? They can anticipate a punishment of eternal fire and that the blackest darkness has been reserved for them forever. This should be a super stiff warning. This should shake us to our core, make you and I want to study what the Bible says so that we will not be deceived. And actually, if we're ever quiet about acknowledging that there is only one true God, that should scare us a little. By the way, the book of Revelation carries this thought of one true God right into the future. It uses the same kind of wording, addresses syncretism again by talking about how people refer to God with blasphemous names. Just really clearly saying that there are, there's only one name for the Lord. Or you could say it this way, if the Bible prescribes a name for the Lord, use that name. Other names are not Him. There are blasphemous names. Talks about prostituting themselves and worshiping different gods. Becoming adulterous to the Lord. So Revelation carries that into the future. I hope that's clear that this is a timeless thing. A moral law that spans all time. Okay, but let, let, me, just, let me just back up a little bit. Right? Let me just... I know we're thinking about it, so I want to say it. Are you saying, Delan, that... No, wrong question. I'll go to this side. Are you saying that the Bible says that Jesus is the only Lord and Savior even when you go into a different culture? Like, you cross the border and it's still Jesus? Does that line up with the New Testament? Does that line up with what the heroes of the New Testament did? 
How would you know? Oh, yeah, right. We have to read our Bibles. I'm going to read a bunch of Scripture, but I'm just going to show this to you on a map. I'm going to use this map, and I don't know which map perfectly to use. You can just go to the next slide. This map is a map of Paul's missionary journeys, and I just picked it because it shows a number of those countries. They're different colors. I like colors, and so this helps me kind of grasp what's going on here in the New Testament, okay? And I want to show you where New Testament uh, heroes or authors of the New Testament, um, that their message was the same everywhere that they went. So if we go to the next slide, I'll just make it a little dimmer, and I'm going to put little dots on there or whatever. I don't know how to do this very well, but that dot is on top of Jerusalem. That's in Israel. Israel is very small, okay, in that side of this map. When Paul went to Rome, in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, you can just look at the map, and I'm just going to read some of this. In Rome, he, went, he said, they, he talks about them, he says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. He called what they were worshipping a lie, but they exchanged it to worship the Lord. And then in Galatia, in Galatians 4.8, he says, Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that don't even exist. Can you imagine? He will have gone into Galatia and said, "Those, those Those aren't even gods. In Lystra, in Derby, cities in Galatia, in Acts 14, he says, We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then he told them, in the past, he let nations go their own way. It's like Paul was telling them that, you know what? This is even more important now since Jesus died than it was even before. And if you know, if you heard the sermon from last week, you know how important it was to God in the Old Testament. If anything, he's raising the bar. When he went to Achaia, Corinth and Athens are cities in Achaia. That's why I put two dots there. To the Corinthians, he says, You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute isles. And these verses that I just read that the map represents, if you read them in your Bibles, there's going to be a little footnote beside each one, and guess where those footnotes are going to lead you? to the Old Testament, exactly to the passages we looked at last Sunday. In Athens, for instance, the city known for its religious philosophers, Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And it's noted that they had many objects of worship. Paul calls these people ignorant of the things that they worship. How do you think that message went over? And he said, We shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone, And then he says, God overlooked people's ignorance about those things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. He was in Athens when he said that. And just like he told the people in Galatia, this is even more important now since Jesus died and rose again, if anything, than it was even in the Old Testament. When he was in Thessalonica, They turned to God from their idols, I'm reading right out of the Bible, to serve the living and true God and wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus. 
who rescues us from the coming wrath. They turn from their idols to worship the Lord. Just so you know, when I'm going through this map and showing you places here, there's many scriptures in the, in the New Testament that would talk about how worldwide the gospel is. These ones, that I'm just picking out the ones that clearly, when they went into those nations, they said, the gods you're worshiping are worthless. Just want to show that to you. And in Ephesus, when Paul taught about Jesus, it was threatening those who believed in the goddess of Artemis. She was the goddess of the Ephesians. And people were earning a living selling her idols. And these people went, they started a riot because they knew that the two were incompatible. They are quoted as saying this, This man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for a business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess, worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. These people were furious because they knew that the God of the Bible is incompatible with whoever Artemis is. In all these countries, the message is the same. These so-called gods don't even exist. They're worthless things that lead you astray. You ought to repent, come to Jesus, who is the one true God in whom salvation can be found. That message is consistent throughout the entire Bible. We haven't even started talking about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and this little yellow arrow points to Ethiopia. It's way down there on the stairs somewhere. And when this Ethiopian eunuch is in his chariot reading about in, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, and he's like, what does this mean? Philip comes up to him, and did Philip tell him, you know what, those Ethiopian gods you're serving, that's who you're reading about? No! He said, it's Jesus! This was a government official from Ethiopia. Their customs will have been quite different than Philip's. Doesn't matter. Jesus is the one in whom salvation is found. He got baptized in the name of Jesus right there. And what about Peter? When he writes to believers in Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, in Asia, and in Bithynia, he says this. Listen carefully. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Do you hear what he's saying? He's, he called this way of life handed down to them from their ancestors, what do you call it? An empty way of life. Woo! What do you guys think? Is the New Testament fairly clear that there is only one true God? But you know what? It's, it's amazing how stubborn people are. Because still, in some people's minds, there still isn't evidence enough. And you know what people say? I'll use it right here. I'm a red-letter Christian. And you have not shown me one red-letter quote 
that Jesus said the same thing. And so I am still not convinced. Often when people say I'm a red-letter Christian, it's code for progressive Christianity, meaning something along this line that I can ignore all the Old Testament. I can ignore all of last Sunday's sermon because it's the Old Testament. It's obsolete. And I can ignore any black letters in the New Testament, especially those that are uncomfortable. And I can claim, still claim, to follow Jesus because his words are red and you haven't, written, you haven't put up any red words on the screen yet. And they do this thinking that then they can ignore what the Bible speaks very clearly of. And they can tolerate the worship of other gods and call themselves a red-letter Christian. But in reality, that is absolutely impossible. It's deception. For instance, Jesus said this. John 6.45, he said, It is written. Can you guys say those words with me again? They're important words. Jesus said, It is written. It's written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from Him comes to me. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. And every time you read through the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's where you find the red letters. Every time Jesus says, it is written, or every time he says, God said, or every time he says, as Scripture has said, he is referring back to and quoting the Old Testament. He is validating the Old Testament as God's Word. He's validating the authority of the entire Bible. And just as this one verse is an example, and then tying that back around to giving evidence to, salvation comes from me alone. Jesus quotes David, he quotes Isaiah, he quotes the Psalms, he quotes Moses, he quotes all the prophets. He says, they all talk about me. I'll give you another example. Do you remember that the words that Jesus said when he chased people out of the table? Ah, out of the table. Temple, tabernacle, there we go. Do you remember the words that Jesus said when he was flipping over tables and he was spilling chairs over benches? and chasing people out of the temple. You remember the words he said? It is written, he said. He said, it is written. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And so what do you think he's quoting when he says it is written? He's actually quoting the Old Testament. He's actually quoting some of the passages that we read last Sunday. He's quoting Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 9 to, uh, verse, uh, 9 to 11. And if you would take the time and go back to think about the, what Jesus is quoting and the passage he just referred to, he is referring to a passage, those three verses, they call out the Israelites for worshiping false idols and then coming into the temple of the Lord and thinking that they're going to be safe in God's eyes. That should be a sobering wake-up call for us, that if we are going to tolerate false idol worship and say, well, whatever, you can have your truth, I'll have my truth, and whatever, God detests that. And Jesus himself says it. He's carrying that same principle from the Old Testament 
bringing, in, bringing it into the New Testament, and if anything, is actually raising the bar because he would even include things like you cannot worship God in money. And sometimes that's not quite as, we don't, bow, we don't literally bow down and worship money. And so sometimes it's a little harder to tell for worshiping a different God. But he said you cannot worship God in money. You cannot serve God and anything because there's only one true God. If you want to walk in harmony with Jesus, you cannot tolerate the worship of idols. You're God's temple. And just as in the same way that there is no harmony between Jesus and Satan, there can be no harmony between you and idols because you are a temple of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 to 16, it's exactly what Paul is saying. So what we see in the New Testament is, is that Jesus brings this Old Testament concept of one true God and he clearly himself says it in the New Testament. He's tying these things together. And I just want everyone to be aware of this trap of disguising a mistrust of Scripture while claiming to follow Jesus' words in red. In John 14, Jesus answered and he said this. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So much for syncretism, so much for universalism, so much for polytheism. Jesus said it. John 17, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. You can consider the words of truth that Jesus resisted Satan with in Matthew chapter 4. It says this, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and all this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from, me, away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, quoting Old Testament, that carries into the New Testament. You don't worship God plus. You worship God only. Let me give you another little tidbit. Maybe you, maybe you don't even know this one. Okay? But have you ever, could you just raise your hand? Have you ever heard Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? Come on. If you ever read your Bible, you might, you might jog it. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard him call, say that before. What is that? What is that all about? That's the question you should ask because every time that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he's actually referencing Daniel chapter 7, verse 11 to 13, sorry, 13 to 14, in which Daniel has a vision of someone who was like a son of man. And that son of man was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And it says that all people of all nations and people of all languages worship this son of man because his kingdom is indestructible and eternal. And when Jesus said, and called himself the Son of Man in John chapter 6 as an example, guess who followed him? Twelve people. Everyone else left. Why? That's tough. But Jesus said, John 17, he said, he prays, sanctify them by the truth. 
Your word is truth, he said. John 18.37, I could have put that up on there too, but John 18.37, Jesus talks to Pilate. He told Pilate, for this, this is exactly the reason I came into this, I came, was to testify to the truth. In fact, everyone who listens to the truth comes to me. And you know what's amazing about this word truth? That is not an adjective describing the things that Jesus said. It's not describing the Bible. It's a noun. It's actually a thing. It's an absolute thing. This is the truth. It's not just one true thing out of many things. It is the truth. It's a thing. So the truth is that there's only one true God. You cannot separate Jesus' words from the rest of the New Testament, and you cannot separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. The Old Testament presents the idea that there's only one true God and is a moral law established firmly then. And the New Testament affirms the foundation that the Old Testament laid down. You cannot be open to worshiping God by an unprescribed name or way and recognize the authority of Scripture. You cannot, you cannot worship God by an unprescribed way or by an unprescribed name and still say that you're holding to the authority of Scripture. The two don't mix. If you believe what this book says, it's obvious. So the question, so you know what this does? It does the same thing to us today that it did in John chapter 6 when Jesus said, I'm the Son of Man. It, puts, it makes you stand on a fulcrum. You know what a fulcrum is? It makes you stand on a very uncomfortable point which nobody likes to stand very long because it hurts. And it forces you to either go one way or the other. So the question is, do you actually believe that this is the infallible Word of God? That this is God's final authority on all matters? That's the question. You can believe whatever you want to believe, but what the Bible says is very clear. Jesus there I am so glad Lord that you are a God of love that you are a God of grace and mercy and compassion and at the same time Lord I'm filled with intimidation at the thought that you're also a God of truth and that you are God and I am not. And I, Lord, do not want to be among those who arouse your jealousy. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.